see Amber back there. Ransom's looking handsome. Are you ready for the curve? Oh, dude, I'm so fucking pumped. I believe I saw like an eight-something squat. So the adductor is 100%, which is awesome to see. Yeah, 815. That's ah, pretty good. You know, most important because I've come back from that. The hardest part to come back from that is not the muscle. It's the mental. God damn, that's the fucking truth. Yeah. The mental is the hardest aspect to come back, which is why I'm such like an advocate, not just for general mental health. I mean, we all struggle. That's usually why we all take the bar because we have our internal struggles. But I'm an advocate for like a positive mindset and speaking things into existence and creating that, that habit and that ritual ahead of time in your mind because it is really, really hard to get back under a bar when you've had a catastrophic injury because that's all you can think about. And that fear can be paralyzing. So it's really, really good to see somebody else who's come back from it and not just come back, but come back stronger. No, dude, it's, it was <laughs> – a lot of weeks of mental fucking war with myself and just, like, crying after squat sessions or even during the squat session. Lots of crying. Lots of crying. <laughs> Lots of crying in this shit. <laughs> I, I didn't cry <laughs> when I didn't hurt myself after my third attempt and then instant tears. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I was like, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool because I think if you're not emotionally invested – in that level of the sport, yeah. you're not going to be your best. Like if it's a hobby for you, and it's it's true, don't really get paid. But if you're not that emotionally invested, you're not going to see an exceptional level of skill development and strength ever come with that if you don't have that level of commitment. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Shit, even when I wasn't injured and at record breakers before my third attempt deadlift, I was sitting there trying not to cry because I was having such a good day. I was so stoked with what I was doing. I was like, all right, just hold it back until after you're fucking done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Brian. We do. We're a bunch of big crying men. And Brian, Brian is done pooping. Brian, hey. done pooping. <laughs> I hope he gave the courtesy flush and then the white flush because otherwise the toilet clogs. <laughs> All right, so we've got generation strength here. We're already recording. We're good. Let's go right into peak. Actually, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. Let me let everyone that's there introduce themselves in case people don't know who they are. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right, Canada, we'll start with you. I'm Amber Dawn. Oh, wait, that's not <laughs> I'm Amber Dawn. Um, I'm Canadian. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely important to point out. Well, I hear it every fucking day, so. <laughs> right, so you're from Canada. Yeah, I'm from Canada. What do, you um, do, what do you do here? I'm a powerlifting strength coach. I also work on general fitness. Um, I've been doing this for almost four years now, uh, working with Gen Pop and powerlifting athletes. So, okay, what's your official title? My official title? Canada. Canada. <laughs> <laughs> You've done the prescript level one and yeah. the barbell course. Um, I've done the prescript level one, the barbell course, so. and a handful of other courses as well. Good. Oh, yeah. Cool. What about you? What's your name? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Today's strength gym and uh class clown yeah okay <laughs> that's that's probably... i mean a fellow class clown <laughs> literally i'm curious all the time that's a fact this is yeah. what, I, what i deal with yeah, every day here. it's not my fault you laugh at my hobbies man like <laughs> <laughs> all right then we got ranson up front who already spoke if you don't know ranson lee he'll be competing at the kern uh former bodybuilder turned powerlifter, and is seriously strong as shit trying to be don't fluff him up like that. <laughs> he, is, he does not need his ego pump. Well, I want to look at this on camera, so a little fluffing helps. Hey, that's right, man. Different Different Everyone needs a little fluff every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you guys know Chris Bridgeford because he's like my adopted powerlifting son, and we talk all the time, and uh, he'll send me chocolate milk. And I'm a fellow Fair Life aficionado, and I'm joined, of course, by Riley every week. Riley Presno. Hi. Who won't be angry at me this week, I hope. <laughs> I'll try not to touch random buttons. I had permission this week to push buttons. <laughs> I had to give the instructions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Yeah. All right. So you wanted to talk about peaking because this is a big topic and we see this often, different strategies for peaking. What's the intent? What's the ideal? So let me let the, you handle the floor here. What is it that you dislike about the way people peak? Uh, that's, uh, oof. so, yeah, so, uh, I mean, 
like I, I just put up a little, a little tiny post about, about peaking. And, uh, it's just, it's something I see more and more where, uh, I used to be like in the mindset when I saw like a big gym lift that like, I thought it was really, really impressive. Uh, because I used to be that kind of lifter where if I put up a big gym lift, I was super, super proud of it. But I started developing this habit of hitting a high squat in the gym or a deadlift with straps in training or whatever. And I'd go into a competition and I'd hit 50 pounds less. But then I, you know, I started seeing all these other lifters, like lifters coached by you, uh, lifters coached by like Chad Wesley Smith. And like, I uh, started reading all these articles about peaking. And I would see lifters who would hit like a 700 pound squat in the gym. And then they'd go into a meet and hit like 750 or 760. It's like, how the hell does this happen? And, uh, my first prep that I did with you going into record breakers 2018 was like a picture perfect example of that. The heaviest squat I hit in the gym was 771. I hit 843 in that meet. The heaviest bench I hit was uh, 485 and I hit my first 500. And then the heaviest pull I went up to was about 826. And that was the meet where I barely missed 904, like right at the lock, right at lockout because I, I lost my balance at the top. So uh after that i really really try like focused on like fine tuning like how to peak and like biggest thing is just like seeing people hit absolute grinders two or three weeks out to a meet or they start to stack up training prs you know six weeks out five weeks out four weeks out and then by the time they get to the meet they only hit their opener and then they hit a, a really really difficult second attempt and then they don't get their third attempt so uh it's really just like i guess unrealistic planning I guess like going into the peak, uh, having like an, because I, when I get into a peaking phase with a lifter, I base everything off of like what we think they're going to hit for a third attempt. So all the percentages I base off of that goal number, but the number needs to be realistic. So like if I have that's only squatted 600 and they want to spot 700 in the meet, that's not realistic. Like we need to maybe go like 625 or 650 and then base all of our training numbers off that. So that's really been the biggest thing is just, seeing people go too heavy week after week after week and then they get so run down and so fatigued going into their deload that it's just not it's not enough like we you know we had a conversation where you know uh before i started with you uh the current us open 2018 where we sat and talked in the airport uh six days out i was uh i was supposed to hit seven i was supposed to hit like 705 for like five singles or something like that from competition which is like at the time when i was you know cutting weight like that's a lot of weight to be doing that close to the meat right so and like then that's like when you told me or it's like yeah like if i were telling you what to do like i'd have you hit your last heavy deadlift three weeks out so yeah a lot of a lot of changes so i i can you know let you kind of it it's a great philosophy to have to work backwards from the goal, not work up to the goal. And I get this question often from people like, can you peak too soon? And the reality is, no, you can't peak too soon. What that means is you're too aggressive with your attempts leading up to the meet that you're fatiguing too soon. Because the whole idea and the whole concept behind the peak is to refine your skill set, move weight as fast as you possibly can, and to not accumulate fatigue. We want to dissipate fatigue, not accumulate it. So if the volume is too high or the workload and intensity is too high, it takes longer and longer to recover from that. Right. And then with me, it's not that you've peaked too soon, it's you went too heavy too fast. Mm -hmm. And that you never actually let fatigue dissipate and you get into the meat and you run down and you're tired and you can't show your true strength. This is especially the case with people who are cutting down into a weight class. Even if it's just water manipulation, that's taxing on the body and it goes through something and it's fatiguing to the body. So even if you're doing just the water manipulation, like they want you to pull 705, which you know, as a high puller at the time, that's not heavy, but six days out coupled with low calories and low recovery and the velocity that you'll pull, pull 705 is going to fatigue you because you're going to pull it with 900 pounds of force, even though it's yeah. only 75. You're a velocity lifter like I am. So that was five reps was accumulating fatigue. That's basically doing five attempts at 905, even though that wasn't on the bar or 904, even though that wasn't on the bar, because that's the velocity you're going to put into it. And you see that often with a high specialization or high frequency program where they, they keep going all the way up to the meat, but they eliminate everything else. And that's what people don't lose. You know, like, oh, the USA Pillifters took like a 90% squat six days out. That's literally all they did. Yeah. They, squat. They yeah. yeah, they're tapering down by dropping intensity. So they might take their heaviest squat two weeks out and then ramp up into the meat with 
technique work, but the technique work keeps dropping and everything else gets eliminated. Like Chad Wesley Smith was big on that. He would take like a heaviest squat a week out, but it wasn't his heaviest squat. Right. And you, literally all he did, he'd walk in and do like a 90% single, which is around his opener, and then he was done. Right. So you have to you have to sacrifice either all of the volume and every accessory, or you have to take it a little bit sooner to keep your conditioning level up if you want. And usually if you're cutting weight, Chad had the advantage of being like a super heavyweight, so there was no weight cut. He was eating to the meat, recovery is high, he can train heavier. If right. you're going to fall, you definitely want to maybe keep a little bit of the volume to help you lose the weight, but lower the intensity as you go in and just make sure you're moving fast because that's all I want my body to remember is how fast I'm moving weight going to the meat because that's what builds meat day confidence. I've moved everything fast. I feel good. Yeah. Uh, another, another big question that I get, or maybe not necessarily like a question, but more so like a statement from clients uh, is I, the idea that I need to hit that weight to like, I need to know what that weight feels like in order to do it. And yeah, see Riley, Riley. Yeah. <laughs> Riley, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's been something, basically everything we just said, that's generally like my response, like, you know, like explaining that, like peaking, like expressing strength is not the same thing as maintaining strength and all that stuff. And it's still kind of the concept of it still gets a little lost on people. Like, I'm sure you've gotten that question before where like, well, I need to, I need to hit the weight to know that I'll be able to do it on meet day. And I get to the point where my response is just like, well, that's just not how it works. And like, I'm kind of lost to like give an explanation beyond that. And like, I don't know if that's a question that you've gotten in the past and how you generally like tackle that approach. Like when you're going into a peak with a lifter and they're like, Oh, like I need to, you know, I need, I need to hit this weight to know that I can do it. Or I need to do some kind of, you know, if you train with like a conjugate approach and you need to like use a slingshot and reverse bands. Uh, I don't think you've ever given me reverse band work. I know we did slingshot work at one point, but it was, it was rep work. I think you gave me, I think you gave me four press with a slingshot, but that's the only slingshot work. heavy single uh you know with any sort of like modified range of motion or like assistance with it like reverse bands or anything like that i always like to look at the risk versus the reward mm -hmm. and if someone can project if someone can project a certain number with things they don't need to have that weight in their hands they just need to show they're capable of it and uh did i tap it and i muted by accident can you guys still hear me yeah, yeah. okay i thought i tapped the meeting because i had messages popping down um so it's one of those things like we just needed to show that your triceps were capable of handling the 501 so we figured out a triple projection off the slingshot which yeah. uh, your pecs to fatigue so much <laughs> floor press so it was like can his shoulders and triceps handle because you were sticking at the top not the bottom so look at it, it's like let's make sure his triceps can project over 500 with a pretty close enough weight that it's there without him actually having to hold and move 500 through the full range of motion which was going to fatigue you out much more so I look at it that way. When people start taking like reverse band max singles and whatnot, that's really, really fatiguing to have that load on your body and have that load on your structure versus let me see, what can this person triple to show me they can hit that? Like with Chloe coming up, we have a goal for the US, for the current open, current US Open. And I'm like, okay, this is what we need to see with a top double in order to hit that number. But I don't want her to take that number in the gym because that's gonna be much more fatiguing. She just has to project that number in a certain range to have the confidence to do it. And we can do that closer and closer we get to the meet with like certain triple projections, three projections, four projections, five projections. Um, Sam Berg was huge on that of taking like a max rep set at 80%, never heavier, and then using that for his projections, like here's where I am. And then as he would get closer to a meet, he'd start taking a couple heavier singles, but he wouldn't add more than 80% of strength weight, strength, straight weight, he would add chain. So the chain would kind of unload the bottom for him because he was a speed guy and he was competing in rap. So the bottom didn't matter as much. He just wanted to make sure kind of getting that top end number to project that he could hit <clears> that and hold it on his back comfortably. And I kind of used the same philosophy with you with the bench was getting you confident to move things that kept projecting 500. And then when you got to it, the 500 came up and it looked like an opener. It was kind of cool. It blasted up the speed. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great day all around. So, yeah, I mean, we've had similar, similar situations with, you know, all these, all these people here. You know, her last her last prep our first prep together her heaviest pull in the gym was 375 and then on meet day she pulled 405 and it looked exactly the same that the 375 did in the gym uh you know ranson with this prep uh you know we're, we're kind of basing everything based off of what we saw from record breakers just because that was a nine for nine for nine day it was a pretty perfect day uh he hit 821 for his heaviest squat in that prep 
uh, because prior to that, we knew that I think it was like a 760 peaked you well for about eight, your first 804. So we're like, okay, like if we can hit 815 to 820, he should be good for about like 850 to 870. And then, so this prep, uh, I, his last time he squat was 815 and it looked better than his 821 that he did from record breakers. So we, you know, we can. Well, it sets in a two and a half meter wrap and not a three. Yeah. So, and the depth was better because, you know, that was, that was an issue uh, with record breakers prep. He hit uh, 849 on the platform. You know, it was, it was, rec- it was record breakers. You know, if we were to hit that squat, you know, like in, you know, like a meet, like the current U.S. Open, it might be pretty, you know, it might be pretty borderline on, you know, if you, you know, if it would count or not. So, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ranson, do you remember getting mad at me? <laughs> about Breaker squats? I don't think so. I don't remember that. I squat about a lift right coach who was in a federation that had like borderline judging. <laughs> talk about death <laughs> from a cycle we got uh, riley yeah. <laughs> you're talking about not death. Yeah. I, I encourage the overcome that insecurity of i need to feel the weight well it, and that's what it is it's just like a confidence issue so i kind of have to remind them like if it is if it is your true like one rep max you're probably only going to be able to hit that one time so if you hit that that time in the gym you're not going to be able to do that again on meet day yeah. so Usually, like, when in peaks with their, like, heaviest attempt before, I encourage them to leave some left in the tank. Like, I'm like, okay, this is your last heavy squat, deadlift, bench, whatever. And I'm like, you can push it a little bit, but leave some in the tank because this isn't meat day. This is not this is not the important day. The meat day is important. This number won't go on open powerlifting. Your meat day number will. So it's just trying to remind them that, like, trust the process is really cheesy and lame but like you have to do that like there no one cares what you squatted in the gym no one cares what you deadlifted in the gym you have to leave a little bit of room to push yourself further on the platform so i just remind them that if it is a one rep max you're going to be able to do that one time and that's it Uh, remember who it was uh but they talked about taking like max attempts as like you have a meter of like how many max attempts you're capable of doing in your here and was it was it ed cohen yeah uh he says like you only have so many attempts at you know for me like it might be 900 like i won't i only have so many times i'm going to be capable of doing that i can either choose to waste that in the gym and fuel my ego or i can save it and you know do it on meet day where it matters i uh nowadays like i'll i'll compromise with clients and i'll i'll do like a heavy walkout and hold if they Mm -hmm feel heavy weight i won't let i don't do i can't tell you the last time i programmed reverse band work uh i think the hey, last time i did was time. uh brian back in 2018 and after that we were just kind of like yeah that didn't really <laughs> do anything for me <laughs> that was that was back when i was like still like trying to figure out like am i you know am i more like this style of training or am i you know am i going to stick with like a conjugate approach or am I going to like blend the two together a little bit? And I was still kind of deciding and playing around with things that I like to use. And uh, after that, I was pretty much like, okay, like reverse band work is, is pretty hit or miss. And uh, it's purely psychological. Like it doesn't yeah. provide, you know, the, the super constant, super compensation effect or whatever, you know, you want to call it the fancy science terms behind it, but it's purely psychological and, ego, and an ego boost. Like, okay, if I can hit 900 with, you know, reverse monster minis, blah, blah, blah. Like I should be able to hit this much. It's like, no, like I'm not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. So Jesse Burdick has an interesting way of using reverse band work. And basically what you can like reverse band triple with like light band or mini bands is basically what he'll say is like your projected third attempt, which is more interesting than someone who takes the max effort reverse band single for the psychological aspect. He's right. like, okay, triple this number with many reverse bands, there's a good chance you're going to hit on the platform, which is a more practical approach to using the reverse band method. I just don't particularly like it for a lot of people because it tends to ruin their pattern. I will say that yeah, Jesse, was, yeah. Jesse was really good about programming reverse band work. Like, hey, like if your bands are taking like 25% of your one rep max off at the bottom, you're using too much. Like it needs to be like 10%. So like if you're, 
an 800 pound squatter, like you should only be using like the red mini bands for reverse bands. Yeah. Like, you know, you shouldn't be using like the fucking, the gray bands to take a hundred pounds off of each side at the bottom of your squat. So uh, he, he would do the same thing too with uh, block pulls. He would, he would, he would tell, he would say that uh, whatever you could do off of blocks for like a triple, you should be able to do from the floor for a single, which I think is more applicable than using reverse bands uh assuming that you know the block isn't too high if it's like a you know two two to th you know four inch block i think anything higher than that and the range of motion is shortened too much especially like if you're a sumo puller so hear that riley 495 from a one inch mat for three means you can pull from the floor yeah. <laughs> this one has a psychological problem whenever sumo gets heavy. i do not she has a great great like pr every <laughs> People like just like a beltless random weekend, like completely fatigued, pizza fueled PR. Yeah, it comes heavy. Her state needs to be after a seminar, and that's all of her all of her good deadlifts. So it shows you the psychological aspect of like if you're not even thinking about it, the weight moves because you've done the work. No, and it's also because I'm in a room of people that I don't know, so I'm like, yeah. okay, I have to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me helps on meet day too. Yeah, you know, some people are like game time players they love the room they love the energy they love the atmosphere and other people like wilt by that so yeah i'm i'm not as good in the gym at all i'm on way better on the platform same yeah yeah same <laughs> in the gym and on the platform like my my the last meet that i did i definitely got way too into the meet and it was not a great meet um, yeah. <laughs> but when i'm not thinking about it and i'm just this is just a fun day which I mean, obviously have fun. That's the whole point of it. But I get my head completely out of it. And that's when I perform best. So if I'm not focused on actually what is going on on the platform, and it's like, this is just, I'm literally focused on something else. That's when I do my best. Yeah, I think the, the thing that plays into it for me the most is that I only know my openers. And that Chris just fucking loves yeah. whatever else on the bar. So I never know what the weight is. So I can't get in my head about it. And it's just like, all right, whatever it is, I'm just going to fucking put it up. Yeah. And I'll actually do that in the final weeks of peak too i don't i can't really do that with remote clients uh but even like with remote clients uh you know on uh with like the programming like i'll write in the weight for the first set and almost like they have to earn the like you know it'll be three singles or whatever and the first single is at like 88 percent, and i won't write in the weight for the next two so it's like they have to earn the right to add weight past that like okay like if you make 88 percent look like an opener then we'll work up to like a projected second attempt, which may or may not be a small gym PR, but you know, depending on how that prep goes, because we have obviously have, we have people that make lots of progress in their building blocks. So they get to the point where they're in like a peaking phase where, yeah, they might be doing their meat PR for, you know, working sets or whatever, like best case scenario. But uh, in that scenario, yeah, like I, I won't tell them what their weight is going to be. And that's a situation where they send me their first set and I'll tell them what to go up to. And then, like, Ranson's, his last, you know, I'll do that with everybody if I'm in here. Like, his last heavy deadlift yesterday, I didn't tell him how much weight was on the bar until afterwards. And, uh, for both of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for squats and deads, I did that with everybody for the record breakers prep. Uh, so, I, I just think it, it takes a variable out of it. Like, if they don't know what they're hitting, then they can just put all their, put all their energy towards that. Yeah. <clears throat> we actually talked about, like, the kind of, like, the environment thing, like, a couple weeks ago where I told you – uh like record breakers and then like the cage uh were like some of my like best lifting experiences because it was just a really positive environment i didn't really get caught up in like competing against other people and like making it more so like i'm gonna beat this guy like i'm gonna put up a be better total than this guy like it was just with record breakers i had all my friends and training partners around me when i was in the cage i had you i had garrett and i had, every I had joe and everybody else from the midwest there that like i that i know and that i'm that i'm friends with and uh those that type of environment i i strive like it's pressure but it's the right kind of pressure because like i'm around people that i feel comfortable with and it's not so much like oh i need to beat this guy like i need to you know i need to prove everybody wrong or whatever uh like the last meet i prepped for i didn't even tell anybody that i was doing a meet because i didn't i didn't want i didn't want that pressure so all right so we talked about meet peaking strategies for someone making sure that there's speed on the bar making sure there's something left over Taking small gym PRs versus grindy PRs, leaving something <clears throat> matters. Let's talk about meet day attempt selection. How do you like to break it down? Uh, 
well, like that, that goes back to like, all right, so like if we have a goal, a goal third attempt, so like Ranson, if his goal third attempt is 881, we want the, we, I generally do the opener at like 88 to 90% of that third attempt, or, you know, people will generally say like something that you can hit for a triple, like on any, any day of the week, even if it's a bad day. So I generally go with like 88 to 90%. So for him, I think that would be about like 793 to 804. And then uh, from there, like if depending, depending on the day, cause like we have, we have situations where you might not be able to secure a meet PR in your second attempt, but if you stay conservative on your second attempt, you might be able to secure a PR for your third attempt. And exactly what happened to me at record breakers in 2018, I opened with 771. I went to 815, which was not a meet PR, but then I went to 843 for my third and I got it and I had enough energy to hit that and to make it look good because I didn't go too heavy on my second attempt, which I developed a habit of doing because I was terrible at planning attempts for myself. So I had somebody else take, take over. And uh, so I went 771, 815, 843, secured that meet PR on my third attempt. Whereas, you know, if we have somebody like Amber or Brian here, uh, they might, you know, make a little bit more progress, you know, in their meet prep and they might secure <clears throat> a small meet PR on the second attempt. And in that case, if they secure a meet PR on their second attempt and it's enough to build the total at the end of the day, I'll let them, you know, I'll, I'll go a little bit more aggressive for third attempts. Uh, but the goal is to always go three for three. Uh, like I said, generally the opener is about 88 to 90 percent of the of the planned third attempts, a conservative third attempt. Uh, we make, you know, a four to six percent jump for the second attempt. If we can secure a meet PR on the second attempt, even if it's just five or 10 pounds or two and a half to five kilos, we will. Uh, if not, we'll go conservative to try to get the meet PR on the third attempt. Right. I like that. And we use something pretty similar, um, especially because a lot of our clients are remote. We're not always at the meets with them. So I always look at that aspect of what's the, what's the goal third attempt, or if they know their actual max, it's been done relatively recently. Like let's say they PR the meet and take their before the have like an actual max uh, opening around 90% of that actual max or the goal third. And I really like that you touched on saving energy for that third attempt, because if you've grinded your second attempt, you haven't left any room for that third, you're making it harder and harder to hit the PR in the meet that you want. And I always look at it as like your, your opener is your last warm up. The only difference is openers on the platform and you're in front of the judges. So you know what to expect and you had, can see the room. Your second starts to secure and build the total. And then, but like you said, which we agree with tremendously is, is leave something for a third. Mm -hmm. You can take a low, medium, high third. So if you feel like you fatigue yourself a little bit in the second attempt, you can take that lower third and just try and keep building your total. Because I always tell people the goal should really be to secure a PR total within eight attempts. That allows you to go ape shit on that third deadlift. If you want to, you yeah. can do the deadlift if you secure the PR total. Right. That's how I like to work at it. Yeah, I give the when I write out midday uh, midday options, I give ranges, and usually their third attempt is anywhere from like 100 percent to 105 percent based off of like what they hit as their last heavy lift, and like their most aggressive one is more towards that like 105, and then their least aggressive one is basically their last heavy movement from peak. Um, so that way they have an option, and then also you know kind of like how they're feeling and how their confidence is on meet day, like with newer clients that like I'm going through their first meet with them, what they chose from what I gave them also tells me how they will perform on meet days. Like if they, no matter what, no matter how something moved, if they chose the lower end of all of those ranges, I know that they're probably not a game day player. So I know that I'm going to have to push them a little bit more if I want them to give. More. So like next meet, I may increase their, percent ranges to be a little bit more aggressive because I know that they'll still go for the low end. So I'll maybe change on their next meet, their low end to something that's more moderate, but they think it's low. So they choose it and then they get a bigger PR. So that one kind of depends on what kind of vibe they give me with. Yeah. What they do. It's highly individual and you know, it, it, it's different person to person and obviously seeing their videos every single week, it makes it really easy to choose attempts for them if you're in person or even if it's remote. I, I've done the same thing with some people where like I would give them ranges and they would always, no matter what, after two or three meets with them, they would go to the high end, no matter what, no, no matter how difficult their second attempt was, they would always go to the aggressive end for the third attempt. So I would stop giving them ranges. <laughs> I would stop giving them ranges and I would give them a specific number to hit for the second and third. I wouldn't give them, 
I wouldn't give them a high or low or planned second or third attempt. I would just be like, all right, this is your opener. This is your second attempt. This is your third attempt. Just because they were going five for nine or six for nine, you know, two, two meets in a row. So I was like, okay, we need to go nine for nine. You know, we need to focus on, you know, I, I know that you want to squat 700, but you haven't even squatted 650 yet. So like you need to, you know, we need to focus on passing that milestone and then we'll go 675 and then 700. And I think that's a big thing that like, Another thing that affects peaking is people think in increments of like 50 to a hundred pounds when they think about PRs, people think that like, Hey, if five, if you hit a 10 pound PR on every lift, you're going to put 30 pounds onto your total. If you compete twice a year, that's 60 pounds on your total every year. Or people look at uh, like bigger lifters who are able to put more pounds on their, on their numbers each time they compete than most people are like, for instance, my squats, like, up until this year, like, they, they've gone – I pretty much put, like, 30 pounds on my squat every time I've competed in a meet, yeah. which is not something that's going to happen for a majority of people at all, not even close. Like, and there's going to be a lot of people who can only PR, like, 10 pounds on their squat or maybe yeah. five. And then eventually Later. everyone gets to a point where, like, you're going to have to fight for that, like, five pounds extra on your lifts at some point or you'll have a, like my bench was stagnant for two and a half years before now it's finally flying up. Just have a bigger, so, that's for sure. <laughs> you just a good point though of time. So Jared asked, Jared from death for designer asked that question about novice lifters versus elite lifters and being able to put bigger numbers up in the total. The biggest separation factor between a novice lifter and an elite lifter isn't their strength level. It's the amount of times they compete. Someone like Ranson's probably only competing at the U.S. Open once, maybe twice a year, and the other meet something like the showdown, which would be like in sleeves. They're not competing every other month just because there's a contest. Yeah. So I have that want to do every single meet that comes up, and that's why they don't see anything more than that 5- or 10-pound PR. And that might even be just on their total because they never give themselves time to grow, adapt, and get stronger. They're always competing and testing and never spending any time building. I also feel like between novice and intermediate or elite lifters, the elite lifters are probably going to know more of what they're actually capable of. Like they'll be able to say, I have 10 pounds left in the tank. Whereas like a novice lifter is going to be like, I have no idea what I have left. And they have like 50 pounds left. A client here who, when I, when I ask how something feels like when she goes heavy, she's just like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, well, I'll like, I'll decide how easy that was. And like, you know, she's, she's made a lot of progress, but yeah, she's just, every time I like, Hey, how did that feel? Did that, did you notice a difference with this or this? She's like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> That's why it's so different. I love you. So. <laughs> Awareness and yeah. confidence. Um, Alexis brought up the ego. I think it's somewhat a little bit more of the confidence as well because the novice lifter is going to work up to 99% of their absolute all-time max on their second attempt. And the more advanced elite lifter is probably going to work up to somewhere like 95, 94% on their second attempt because they're leaving something for that PR third attempt. And that's just meat experience and meat confidence. But I am a meat day guy. Like Chris and Riley were there at the um, hybrid meet. I'm bleeding out of my hands. I'm just packing more chocolate to try and keep the bleeding down. I had a god-awful prep. And I hit my second deadlift. And it was grindy as fuck. And before they even announced good lift, I just turned around like 804. Like it was I had maybe 5, maybe 11 on my best day left in me. But I asked for like a 28-pound increase. <laughs> Hold 777. 777, and yeah. And I was like, okay, he probably has, like, the 785 or, like, somewhere in that range left. And he just looks at me, and he's like, go put an 804. And I was like, <laughs> they hadn't even announced it was a good lifter. <laughs> All right. We're going 804. And then stapled. <laughs> yeah, stapled. Stapled. Uh, I think another thing that is worth mentioning or worth talking about real quick is warming up on meat day. Uh, I, that's, that's something that I, I wouldn't say I struggle with, but that's something I, I surprisingly get a lot of pushback on is I have clients that like want to do like sets of five all the way up to their last warm up. It's like, Hey, like we're not here to work out. Like we're here to like, I'll, you know, do one set of like 10 with just like 135 with a bar on and then do like, I'll do like one set of three and then singles all the way up. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think that's that's another big like mental part of of you know meet day you know warming up and attempt selection is uh, just knowing that like you, your body doesn't need like assuming that you you know you do your stuff before before even getting under the bar but you don't need to do that much to to warm up and to prime your body for 
that like maximal like top end strength that you're capable of hitting is that is that something that you've dealt with a lot or like how do you I'm sure we like have lifters warm up the same way but uh is that something that you've dealt with how do you like to have lifters warm up I generally just have lifters do like assuming they like you know if it's like a beginner level lifter it's you know anywhere from four to six warm-up sets and that's it we do one or two sets that are you know five to ten reps and then the rest are just singles all the way up uh last warm-up is generally like you know if it's somebody like ranson it's easily like a you know a seven you know five to eight percent jump from his last warm-up to his opener and uh yeah so I do the same. Uh, somebody just asked, Swole Kid just asked about doing like meat specific stretches. You do just, uh, lift specific stretches and activation, or you just right to the bar. Uh, I will usually do a couple bodyweight movements and activation drills and then get up to the bar. And I'm usually, and I hate to actually steal the name from, from um, uh, Wendler, but like my warm up strategy is, is literally 5 3 1. Like my first set is five reps, my second set is three reps, and everything beyond that is single, single, single. And I take as many singles as I need to keep my speed and not fatigue and get as close as I, I, I don't want to say as close as I can to my opener, but get in that range where the, your strength level, they might jump. So like my deadlift is, is plate, 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 basically to the platform. Right. Um, I use a little bit more of a warm up where I might take the first one of like plate, quarter, plate, and then go plate, plate, plate. You know, I get a couple extra warm up sets in on the squat just to loosen up first lift of the day. Uh, bench is the same, you know, like a 135 for five, 185 for three, and then single, single, single kind of thing. Yeah. But you're going to decide how big of a jump you want. And if it's one of those where if you're taking 33-pound jumps every single attempt and you're like an 800-pound lifter, that's a lot of warm-up sets. Yeah. So like 66, 100 pounds. Like my deadlifts are 90 to 100 pounds, depending upon what kind of plates they have. If they're kilo plates, it's 110-pound jumps all the way up. And then my second to last warm-up, I kind of split the difference between my first opening attempt and the last warm-up. So that won't be like 110 pounds. I'll split it to somewhere between. Uh, I think I opened at 7, 744 for the hybrid meet for deadlifts. And my last warm-up was like 705 or something like that. Yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, it was like 683 or 705. Yeah. It was, it was, I'm like, just get me close to 7. I don't remember what the place were. I'm like, somewhere close to 7 is fine with me. Yeah. So it took like a four-pound jump. But I went from... It was like 611 to that 688, 695, and then platform. So something like kind of split the difference through my opener. But the idea should just be to prime your movement and prime your speed and not to fatigue. So many people go through an entire workout in the warm-up row. I'm like, how are you lifting still? <laughs> I see some, some ridiculous things. I see people hitting their, I see people hit, hitting their openers in the warm-up room so they know that they yeah. can do it before getting on the platform. I've, I've seen more than I like want to admit. I I feel like every meet I've gone to, I see someone doing that, and I'm like, who is your who is your coach? <laughs> who is helping you? People hit their second attempt with a slingshot in the warm up room to make the opener feel lighter. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah, just keep it as simple as possible. You know, uh, yeah, I don't I don't understand anything behind behind those methods. But <laughs> You've already done the hard work anyway. At this point, you should be pretty much just like rested or recovered to where yeah. it's going to feel fairly light anyway and whatever world. and whatever you can hit you can hit you're not gonna yeah. be able to, you're not gonna be able to change anything about that you know it's uh you know the whole point of like by the time you get to a peak you can't you can't do anything to get stronger you can definitely make yourself weaker yeah but you're not gonna be able to do anything there's no amount of like rep work you're gonna be able to do to make yourself stronger those last <laughs> four weeks going into a meet so uh and i think that's something that people don't realize you've done all the training leading up up to the comp now you just need to perform. Yeah. You're not yeah. there to train. Let's let's flip the script entirely to way off season, right? We talk about peaking, we talk about meat day. Let's talk about way off season. Because I got this question a lot because a couple of my lifters have been posting in their story doing a lift like the the buffalo or the duffalo bar floor press. And people are like, why, why, why? And I know Chris is the same way. When we get to be off season, we like to use lift variations that are less deconstructive to the lifter and more about building. So I'll briefly explain that why, and then I'll ask Chris some of the movements that he likes, or you guys, actually, the whole group. Because you all coach. What are some of the movements that you guys like to use in an off-season that are maybe untraditional or a little bit different, and why? Uh, so the simple answer for the buffalo or duffalo bar floor press is a lot of people tend to internally rotate on their bench press. And when your scaps are trapped on the floor, we're building the shoulders and triceps, but they're the scaps are locked down. So that's a lot of torque on the shoulder capsule. The simple solution of everting those wrists a little bit towards ulnar deviation, it allows a little bit more adduction of the elbows into the body, even though the scaps can't move. So it's less torque and less wear and tear on the shoulder joint. And the majority of raw lifters need to build that lockout strength and have that pause on the floor without the stretch reflex from your pecs 
it's a way that I can put a, a tremendous amount of volume in on a lift without tearing down the lifter's shoulders. Because like we all talk about, every power lifter is going to have achy elbows, achy shoulders, achy knees. And it's not the lift that's, that's doing it. It's the volume or the mobility they lack to get there. So it overcomes that lack of scapular mobility that a lot of people have when they're trapped down. And it allows me to train that floor press at higher volumes without deteriorating the athlete, which to me is the most important aspect of an off-season is building the athlete up without deteriorating them so they can handle the hard, heavy work of peaking. What are some like unusual movements that you like to use for those things? Uh, yeah, I, I was going to – I actually, a couple weeks ago, I was going to ask you about duffel bar floor press and like – I saw, I think I saw a couple of your lifters doing it and I was going to ask you about it. Uh, and I kind of, you know, made an assumption on my own because I see a lot of people using that, that bulldog grip now where they're super, like they're, they're overly internally rotated to start. We were working with a lifter of mine on that in here where he's super internally rotated at the start. He doesn't even have like the only finger of his that's even touching the bar is like these two fingers here, super overly internally rotated at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, just, it's, you know, it's not, uh, not safe. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, for me, uh, I'd say for me personally, uh, it's been, it's been front squats, uh, not so much for like the emphasis on the quads, but, uh, seeing how much my, my upper back breaks down that I, no matter how much upper back work I do, I feel like that's always going to somewhat be like an issue for me just because I'm also rounded over all day, every day working at my laptop and looking at my phone. So just fighting that, you know, pattern that I'm sitting in every single day. Uh, that's I, why I struggle with, God damn it. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I'm stuck. Riley's going to kill you. <laughs> uh, it's definitely, it's definitely for me for squats. It's front squats just because, and like I said, not because of the quads or anything, uh, because the leg drive is fine. Like when I use like an SSB for front squatting, yeah, I can still feel it in that, you know, my mid, mid upper back. Uh, but it's not, not an issue of like quad strength. It's, it's that upper back. Like I'm fighting the urge to, to drop the bar forward. And, you know, after I ran through, uh, two training cycles of those front squats, I noticed a huge difference when I went to pull sumo. So it's honestly, it's a better builder for my sumo deadlift. And I mean, I'm sure it's going to have carry over to my squats, but I noticed it way more the, the next time I pulled, cause I wasn't, I didn't pull sumo for like eight weeks. And then uh, when I went down to San Diego, I pulled 804 beltless at Cali Elite. And that was the first time I had pulled sumo in almost two months. And was, I'm going to attribute that to all the front squat, front squat work because my, my mid-upper back, when I, was, when I was wedging into the bar, I was able to hold that position with you know, a much higher weight than I normally do. Uh, so, yeah, just one, for, so one you know, front squats for me, that's a big one. Uh, I didn't do these until I started working with you, but it was uh, incline bench with a Swiss bar. Yeah. Uh, that is the only like incline bench variation I've been able to do consistently over the course of however many weeks without shoulder pain. Uh, anytime I bench with an, anytime I bench incline with a straight bar, uh, it's, you know, I can maybe do it for a couple of weeks, but I just get to the point where like my, my, my delts and my, my pecs just like can't handle it. And that's, you know, a lack of, you know, lack of shoulder mobility and, you know, bad posture for me. But, uh, you know, for the sake of like, you know, if you want to program something that a lifter can do just based off of their individual anatomy, like doing the incline presses with the Swiss bar, that angle, their neutral grip took a lot of stress off my shoulder. And I was just able uh, just to sit like in that more like externally rotated position. And it was just a lot easier to even like get the bar to my chest. Like if I have 135 on the bar with like a, a straight bar for incline, I struggle to get the bar to my chest. So that was a, fa a favorite variation of mine that you gave me. Uh, then obviously, uh, you know, for deadlifts, I mean, uh, outside of typical, like if I have people that pull sumo, I have them pull conventional, but uh, snatch grip deadlift, definitely my all time favorite deadlift variation. I love doing them for how terrible they are, but I, I think whether you pull conventional or sumo, I think it's a great deadlift to use uh, in the off season because you're not going to be able to snatch grip deadlift nearly enough weight in comparison to your actual one rep max that it's going to be overly fatiguing uh, unless you have like a rare random few individuals that can pull 90% of their one rep max with a snatch grip. Uh, for the most part, people are so unfamiliar with that position and just like the skill of performing that movement, like they're not going to be able to use enough weight that it's going to be overly fatiguing. Uh, so yeah, those are a couple of my favorites. Uh, 
for squats, I absolutely love the SSB bar. That's probably my favorite thing to get people off season is different variations of SSB work, whether it be um, pin squats with it, which I've seen a lot of progress from people with, just building that power out of the bottom in the hole, and plus, you know, making force keeping upright, which most people fucking suck at. Yeah. Um, so just building that the upper back with the SSB bar um, is pretty, so just different variations with that, whether it's tempo work, whether it's pin squats. Um, that's my favorite, probably favorite thing for. You don't have to worry about the shoulders. Squats. Take the shoulders. Yeah, take, take especially take yeah, save people's shoulders and elbows. You know, during the off season, um, so they don't have issues with that. Um, I also like giving people a lot of like leg machine stuff. Just you know, bodybuilder at heart still. So yeah, I, I love giving people a lot of a lot of leg accessory work with like leg press and especially hamstring work with um, hamstring curls, uh, like like prone or, or seated hamstring curl machines because almost everyone ne- neglects their hamstrings way too much. And building building strength and hypertrophy work for the hamstrings, I think, is something more people need to work on. Um, for, like, bench press, I like, I'm actually a big fan of, of dumbbell work probably more than anything. Uh, and outside, like, out, like outside of any barbell variation, yeah. you really like it. Yeah. Actually, actually, I do because, I mean, it builds – Builds a lot of stability in the shoulder and stuff. Yeah, but it's just you can really focus on just the chest too. Like I, I actually like giving people like hex press, so just like pushing the dumbbell together. Press, press, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I love that. Or incline dumbbell press is probably one of my favorites too. I mean, yeah, I mean, more often than not, depending on you know the type of you know the type of individual that's mm-hmm. reaching out to you, like a lot of people do, just need to build muscle mass. Yeah, a lot that's of people. That's a big overlooked yeah. aspect of it. Because I mean, the more muscle mass, the more load you can handle anyway. So, uh, that's, that's for that. And then pretty much with deadlifts, same as same snatch grip. I've had a lot of success with giving people snatch grip work in the off season. It's, I've seen the true snatch, yeah. true snatch grip. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's it. That's the big thing. Finger outside the ring or it's not snatch grip. I actually, like, the, the um, background, I would, you, I would tell you thumb distance from the ring would be true snatch grip. Yes. Yes. Finally, someone who agrees with that. That, that's me. I tell everyone at least a thumb distance away from the ring or you're not true snatching. Now, I'll be even bigger, Dick. That's thumb distance from the ring that are set to the weightlifting rings, not the powerlifting rings. <laughs> I like that, too. Yeah. Hell, yeah. I just ask people, like, if you were going to throw this bar over your head, would you have your hands where they are right now? And the answer, I mean, the answer is usually no. Yeah. So, like, you want your hands wider. I mean, you don't want to play. Uh, yeah. What about you guys? I'll pick it back off the SSB. Because mm-hmm. so with two guys now, uh, two two guys have problems getting down into the hole, right? Okay. And I use the SSB. I use the uh, tempo regular, so like four one zero tempo, and then SSB pins and SSB fronts. And what they really needed to do was learn how to stay upright. Yeah. And as soon as they learned how to get that extension and stay upright, both. Jalen and Steven, they yeah. just went right down into the Yeah, line. exactly. Yeah. And we never – and after that, it was never a problem. Well, Jalen, a big issue with him is he just – he lacked confidence mm-hmm. to hit the hole. And yeah. with those with those variations, like with a front squat, you can't stop yourself from hitting true depth. Nope. It's yeah. a really, really difficult movement. Like with a low bar squat or a high bar squat, I mean, I can stop myself right at parallel and feel fine. If I try to stop myself – like at parallel with a front squat, it's not going to feel good, and I'm going to want to dump the bar forward. So you kind of have to, you have to let your hips go all, yeah, sink all the way down. I started with I started with SSB pin squats so he could even feel what depth was, mm-hmm. and then from there, the next block I did on one day I did tempo SSB work, and then on his secondary squat day we did uh, uh, front SSB squats, and then ever since then he's had no problem sinking his hips. I like that a lot. That's a good progression. It worked out really well. Yeah. And you have two interesting points of the front squat being oh. a deep pattern with uh, dude, eccentric pause deadlifts. Yes, yeah. dude, yes, those yes, have, yes. Those have fixed so many starting positions. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I actually, I the first time I ever did those was when I worked with Tony. Okay. Like way back in 2016, that was the first time I ever did them because it was like, uh, yeah, like the idea with a pause deadlift is to like improve your positioning in that in that in that spot but uh yeah i realized how like under trained i was oh. with doing the eccentric portion of the deadlift when so i had hard. to do those like yeah. i i couldn't even do them i couldn't even do them with like 60 no. i couldn't yeah. do it yeah it was bad 
even like eccentric deficit pause. Yeah. Like, oh, because yeah. then like they're pretty much pausing where they would be on the floor, and this like and then going down a little bit further, and that that's seen a lot of improvement with people's position on that. Just having right. like a Ransom's latest just out. One of Ransom's clients, and he doesn't like you. I guarantee you, he probably gave you eccentric deficit pause deadlifts. <laughs> the meanest thing I probably ever did was I have this one guy who he's like, I don't know, six two. And I gave him deficit snatch grip pause deadlifts. Oh, Jesus Christ. Ooh. Let's add a variation yeah. on top of a variation. But his deadlift, his deadlift shot up like 60 pounds for his meat, which is cool. Not the best. Control and positioning. Yeah. So you gave him what he needed, even though he didn't enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just what you need. Dude, All right. What do you got? But the best deadlift variation is sumo. Deficit against heavy bands. <laughs> oh, God, I could kill him that one. I want, to point out, I want to point out that wasn't even on his program when he did that. Yeah. That was he was totally intentional. I saw, I saw Dan Green started doing those. <laughs> and I, like, I was going to comment. I was going to be like, don't do it, Dan. I know where this, I know where this road leads to. <laughs> you know, hey, but, I mean, that was – I mean, it's definitely very – High risk. Hey, it was working. Until it wasn't. Yeah, it was. It was working until my mu you know my muscle decided. I to remember that day. I was like, "God damn, he's strong." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was you know when I when I was working with Kabuki, I you know I went through two training cycles of those, and uh, now granted, at the time I was you know I was getting body work done, and I was getting uh, fascial stretch therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, but I was getting fascial stretch therapy done you know twice a week. Uh, I was getting body work done once a week. So like I was able to, you know, I was able to consistently get my hips into that position. And then, you know, later on, you know, around that time, it's like, I want to perform the same movement, but I'm not doing the same amount of work outside away from the bar to allow myself to perform that movement efficiently. And I think that's a big part of like movement selection that's overlooked. Like, okay, like if you want to do that movement, you need to like, you almost need to deserve to do that movement. Now, granted, like I, I've never programmed a deficit sumo deadlift again after that, or I've never done one either. So uh, we can just, you know, not talk about that one. But uh, what about you, though, Amber? I'm probably going to pick adaption. All of these. Um, I I work with a lot more novice lifters, so um, SSB work is a big one. Um, high bar work. Um, I actually really like complete dead stop floor presses um, because then they're coming. They get to that floor and they have to find remain wow i'm losing my train of thought here they have to maintain tension off the floor and create power after a dead stop right i make every pause their floor pin press but okay. you don't have any leg drive i like that so they have to utilize their triceps they have to utilize their pecs a lot more um mm -hmm. and because i work with a lot more novice lifters i also really like to go into more of the accessory side of things and i work on a lot of unilateral stuff with oh, my yeah. athletes so that outside of barbell work, they do a lot more accessories that focuses on stability with their accessories. Dude, I, anything, anything tempoed, anything, oh, yeah. like anything and everything tempoed. Yeah, but like unilateral movements. Like, yeah, they they my athletes see unilateral movements in every single one of their days. Yeah, tempoed unilateral. I got I got one more that I know Jaffe will be happy with, and then I want to know Riley's uh, is uh, core work. Uh, yeah, I, are you gonna talk like rotational work, anti-rotational work. Yeah, uh, like last, you know, I my my body's not been feeling super great like the last few weeks, just like little bumps and bruises popping up. And uh, just last night, I came I came into the gym. I did ten minutes of sled work with ninety pounds, and I was fucking dying. And then I came in and just did a, a circuit of a circuit of core movements that, to be honest, like I haven't done in way too long. And you know, I went, I did like ab wheel into uh, I did like the like a hip flexor march with band and then I did Copenhagen planks and I just went through a circuit of that. And after two rounds, like I was fucking dying. I was like, okay, like no wonder my body feels like shit when I get under a bar and try to load, you know, two, three times my body weight on there. It's like, I can't even do, I can't even do these simple movements without like my body convulsing. Uh, so, you know, for me, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, like earning the right to get under the bar. So like for me, like where I'm at with my training, it's like, Okay, I'm going to take a step back from barbell work for a few weeks. I'm going to focus on doing these really simple th uh, things three, four times a week, 
I actually build up some tissue tolerance and resiliency, resiliency so my body can actually handle performing those movements. So, uh, yeah, I know you're, you're really, really big on core work, and you'd be disappointed in the amount of core work that I've done. Get stronger by adding in more stability work and core work. Oh, yeah. Hope we can stabilize. Yeah, any, uh, anything, uh, not, not necessarily direct ab work, but anything more so like anti-rotational. Uh, because one of my, my left oblique is a big, big problem causer for me in my lifts, uh, just because I have an old injury there from wrestling and my, I can feel it a lot. Like in my, when I get to heavy deadlifts and, and heavy squats, I can, I can feel my left oblique turn off. And that's, that's big and a big focus for me recently is trying to, you know, even out those, those imbalances. So, uh, one in, she sneaks in and it's, especially for female lifters, it's pull-ups. And if you've never seen the, the activation studies, EMG activation studies, most people will get like 300% more EMG activation in their abdominal wall doing pull-ups than they will direct ab work because you have to stabilize yourself in space. And I love that she forces or encourages her, her female athletes to get better at pull-ups because the spatial awareness goals alone, you know, is huge. They usually, my lifters usually have pull-ups in there in some capacity like twice a week um, just to work on them. But um, I like zerker movements a lot like i will do have a lifter do like a zerker squat or like a zerker reverse lunge um because then they're actually like focusing on keeping their torso upright keeping everything stacked um with the reverse lunge they're focusing on hip stability too while maintaining that torso position so that way they're not breaking down underneath their squat i'm a big fan of that yeah it's actually i, you just I like that, that. I, yeah. I use that a lot on a few of my athletes like last year and coming into a little bit and it was fantastic for helping them maintain that upright posture yeah i, I ordered sandbags specifically for the reason to have people do zerker movements uh to to teach like what you're talking about there like a lot of people have that you know that anterior pelvic tilt and it's a really a re you know, just have somebody hold a sandbag and they're gonna have to like they're gonna have to get out of that position just to hold the sandbag they're gonna learn compression strategy really fast yeah. so Can't uh, confirm it's shitty yeah, it's terrible. So, well, yeah, works. Um, I've also, I also, I saw this from you, Chris. Was like uh, incline presses to pins. I really like those. Yeah, like that's I, another way that I can that I can do incline work without pain is if I do it to a dead stop. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's been a big one for me. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of those. And then uh, I like I like programming more as a secondary movement, um, like a barbell RDL with bands pulling. Um, so that way they're focusing on like packing their lats down, um, getting the tension at the bottom, like for forcing the tension at the bottom before they uh, completely stop. And then they actually learn what it feels like to pack their lats down in a deadlift, whether they're hook grip or mixed grip, whatever their grip is for their deadlift, they take that same one. Um, it doesn't require a lot of tension, just oh, no. like, band, just something to like tactile cue them to force it. Uh, kind of a follow-up question for that. Uh, because I, I I've been I've been doing those since they called it. Uh, there's like a West Side term for that. It's called like vector bandit or something like that. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of fancy names for it. And then there uh, I've seen other coaches post like it's more effective if you put the band at your elbow or at your wrist or at the directly on the bar itself. Do you do you find any sort of difference? Because I just have them loop it to the bar. I personally don't see any difference with putting it at the wrist or at the elbow. You know, maybe maybe if a lifter has a problem with like getting good like shoulder extension and like they don't. I always tell people try to like point point your elbow to like your hip crease instead of having your you know your shoulder roll forward like this. I say like try to try to turn your elbow in. But outside of that, I really don't think it makes a difference. I would rather have it on the band because, or excuse me, I'd rather have the band on the bar because I want them to get the tactile cueing with the bar versus if it was on their elbows, they're going to want to think about that all the time right. versus just knowing what it feels like. Like they're not going to have that band there when they go to deadlift. Right. So even though it is like a tactile cue, I prefer it coming from the barbell. I know that you like uh, cue the bands like behind, like either on hips, pulling yeah. If hips someone struggles to drive their glutes through and they go into extension. Yeah. That's I've cut off activation by going higher up. I don't I don't know. You know what I mean, People see something that's, on Instagram. That's the way I look at it. Like, yeah. You give a longer lever, it's gonna be harder. Yeah. Like why would you cut off People see something on Instagram, they're like, Oh well this coach said that this is the only way uh, that I should do this. <laughs> so, I, I always wait for well, the only, the only, 
if the intent is achieved, I don't care where they put it. I would prefer it on the bar, honest with you, because, you know, they're not going to have a band or that tactile cueing in a meet or when they're doing their heavy lifts. So if it's on the bar, they're getting more used to the bar and it doesn't alter their position. It just teaches them to keep tension in the lats because the bar is being pulled away instead of their arms being pulled away and right. so forth. Um, it can certainly be used as a learning tool. You know, you can use any learning tool, but if you're so focused on where that band is, whether it's on the bar, on the wrist, on the elbow, in the armpit, you're focusing on the minutia and not the major problem, which is a lack of a band of uh, lat tension. Right. Yeah, I like, um, lately I've been liking breathing planks too. Like we talked yesterday about like side planks with breaths instead of for time. Like instead mm -hmm. of saying like side planks for 20 seconds, telling them side planks, five deep inhalations and exhalations. Uh -huh. So that way, we talked about doing that with uh, with like thoracic warm ups. You know, if we have people do like thoracic rotations or anything like that, instead of you know doing it for time, you know, do five full breath cycles or you know whatever it might be. I, I didn't think about doing that with core work, uh, but that makes a lot of sense. So, works. Is Scotty still on here? Swole kid. He got mad at me when I told him he didn't know how to breathe. I called him a chest breather. He wanted to fight me at the seminar last week. <laughs> And that's a great way to do that because when you take a full inhalation and a full exhalation in a plank position or in a side plank position, you really learn how to diaphragmatically breathe because you're completely inhaling, completely exhaling. And because you're braced on the floor, you're not gonna <gasps> breathe up, you're gonna breathe into the belly, you're gonna breathe down to the diaphragm and it strengthens that pattern. And, and you know that's one that we really want to endure. We want to be able to hold that brace for a long time. A great way to teach it and learn it. So yeah. That's, that's, that's something like that. I had a huge problem with when I first got into powerlifting was being it was breathing correctly just because you know bodybuilding i'm used to being on stage and not look like i'm breathing so i'm always just breathing my chest not into my belt at all so learning to actually breathe into my belt and shit, it was probably two years before i started to even slightly slightly get that correctly i'm still and there's days where i still have a lot of trouble with that here yeah that was that was a big one for me too just uh i don't i don't tell people this but i and uh, up till when I was 15 years old, I couldn't breathe out of my nose. Oh, really? I could, yeah, I couldn't breathe out. I had, I had surgery. My in there or uh, I had a deviated septum. Okay. Uh, so when I was 15, I got uh, I got a nose surgery. I had, they cleared out all the cartilage. Nose job? Lose, yeah, nose job. They literally just took a file into my nose and scraped out the cartilage. <laughs> Uh, hey man, you wanted a nose job. You can just say you want a nose job. Does it look like I got a nose job? I'm you you need another one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a big thing I struggled with too, just because you know, the first 15 years of my life, I couldn't really breathe out of my nose, so I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to breathe in and out of my diaphragm, just because I couldn't. I mean, I know, I know you can with your with your mouth, but it's it's generally it's a lot easier to do that if you breathe in through your nose. So, uh, that was that I had to learn too, and like I had no idea that I wasn't even not. That's <laughs> someone's really excited to see oh, you that's yeah i don't know who that is it's some troll account that randomly messages it's through my face now you have a troll account you've made it i think i had like i had like 15 uh hater troll accounts that like to send like random weird dms and messages that just like block them every time and I get a new yeah I, I don't even i don't even bother at uh, least it's not the person who's like why is his left side of the face more beautiful than the right side of the face? yeah <laughs> fuck that guy <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome all right well, this has been a really really fun good yeah. chat we went an hour i would love to do this again because i love to just talk strength to people who actually coach and compete that's it's cool. always pleasure i appreciate you guys giving me an hour of your time and everybody else who's gonna this on monday and watch it yeah it's so just really cool i always love to converse with the community and people always ask me what book to read or what to do and i always say like if you go to a meet talk to the lifters yeah because experience is truly the best teacher because people have experienced what works what doesn't work why something doesn't work and every study is is short term you know, studies eight weeks long, 12 weeks long, 10 weeks long, and it's not necessarily the population we deal with all the time. So it gives us an idea of what direction to go in, but it doesn't give us the gospel. And when you have somebody who's coached somebody for 10 years or 15 years or been in it, you start to realize a lot of what they found to be very, very effective. And sometimes you get better takeaways from that. And so the community hopefully was going to get something from that because, you know, you got peaking strategies, you got off-season exercise selection, you got meet day attempt strategies, and you got to see Chris Bitchford's number one fan. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Bob <laughs> uh, gets out here, like, watches these, like, literally the entire time sometimes. So. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's I, I would agree with that. Like, I've learned more from you and, like, 
Tony and Paul and, you know, Jesse and, you know, you know, the first powerlifting gym I trained at, I trained with Sean Frankel at his gym. So like I've, I've had access to great coaches literally from the time I started till now, like, yeah, I like tell people to like read super training, which is like the most boring book you'll ever read in your life. And not a lot of people are going to take anything away from that. So it's like, just, just talk to people, ask questions. You know, that's, uh, you know, clients that are like, Oh, like, I feel like I'm bugging you. If I, you know, if I ask you about this, like, it's like, no, ask, ask away. Like that's, that's why you pay me for one is to ask me questions. Like part of my job is to educate you, but that's, that's why I've gotten to where I am is cause like, I've always, I bug you all the fucking time. Uh, like when we were at the meet in November in Iowa, like literally the first day I was like, Oh, hi, how's it going? It's been a while since I've seen you. And I was like, wait, I have this video of this client here. Can you fix this for me? Can you fix this for me? Cause I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> But like, <laughs> that day. So, you know, if I, if I don't do that, then I don't learn and then I can't help my clients. So it, most impressive was we went an hour and 10 minutes without Riley, like picking on you for anything. <laughs> so, so I appreciate that. So okay. we can keep the street going. Yeah. Don't message him on his birthday. Like happy birthday. I hope you have a terrible fucking no, day. I think I did that. I think oh, I <laughs> Happy birthday. I hope you have a terrible fucking day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it was also opposite day that day. So. Oh, you know. is that right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but all right. Well, thanks for having us on here. I would definitely yeah. like to do this more often. So. We you guys What? Be, you're going to be at the current, aren't you? Oh, of course. Yeah, we're flying out there. We fly out there Friday. We get there like around 12 p.m. We're going to train Friday afternoon. Ransom, you can't join us because you're going to do, like, some competing shit. That's not that important. Yeah. But Chris, Amber, Brian, if you guys are out there, if you want to train Friday afternoon, let me know. Yeah, Brian's going to take a Larson Press one rep max <laughs> over there. Uh, I'll, of course, deadlift with you if you're going to deadlift. I'm just going to assume that we're just going to deadlift because that's the only thing that you do when you travel. So we'll travel. What? That's the way I get my sumo and everything else is conventional. I just do travel sumo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm cool with that. So, all right. Riley will hit a beltless sumo PR. Probably. I will. Cool. That's right. I'll just eat and hydrate and watch y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, teeth talking with like cookies. <laughs> all right. You, well, cookie. All right, guys. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. Probably be talking to you soon. So, yep. can't wait. Guys. Sounds great. Bye, guys.